Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Smathers and Branson. What a great U.S. Open. Uh, what a great final round we had with John Rahm winning on his first Father's Day. You might not have gotten exactly what you wanted for Father's Day. So why don't you treat yourself to some of the best golf gear and accessories uh, available, Smathers and Branson. You know, one of the big recommendations I have is if you want to, you know, get away from, you know, the standard head cover, maybe you got a stock head cover driver, maybe you got too many logos of clubs on your bag, you want to get rid of one of those. Smathers makes awesome leather head covers with the needlepoint, obviously. I actually gave one to my my brother-in-law. He's a huge Grateful Dead fan, so I gave him a Dancing Bear one uh, for his birthday recently, and he, he loved it. He, he was like, holy cow, this is really cool. It is an awesome gift. It's an awesome gift to give yourself. Outside of just, you know, the belts that are they're made famous for the accessories are really cool including the performance hat they have obviously all your you know professional teams mlb nfl nhl and then they also have universities so you can get something that's you know personal touch for anyone with uh, smathers and branson and if you use the code fried egg no spaces all capitalized at smathersandbranson.com that's fried egg no spaces you will get 15% off your entire order plus free shipping. Um, you know, that's belts. They've got new loafers, accessories, everything on the site. 15% off plus free shipping. So use the code FRIEDEGG and thank you for the support from Smathers and Branson. Today's episode is with, you know, he became a social media sensation. He was the, uh, he made the cut at the PGA as a club pro. Brad Merrick. Brad and I have uh, known each other for a long time. We played one round of junior golf together, and uh, then we were, you know, we played a lot of golf about six years together. And it was really cool to see him resurface on the golf scene after numerous years of mini tour. Chip was really neat. So we talk about that PGA. We will have a recap podcast on the U.S. Open with Shane Bacon early next week. It'll probably be out on Monday of next week, so you'll have that. But uh, to keep everything going, keep things moving. We we got Brad today. He's got some incredible stories. This is really a riot of a podcast to record. And uh, everybody can find Brad on uh, social media, Brad Merrick Golf, and his website there. So without further ado, here is Brad Merrick. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Call, we call him Peppy Peter. That is the nicest human on the planet. Like that dude, I've never seen someone as happy in my life as he was when I made the cut on Friday. Like genuinely happy. It seemed like he was like really rooting for you. Like as much as some of the people that were wearing bucket hats outside the ropes. It was insane. Yeah, you, you know, was it weird being 
really the only two guys wearing bucket hats and and being in the same group. Do you think the the PGA was trying to get cheeky with you? I it has to be right. I mean, there's 156 guys. I mean, I'm not a math wizard, but it just seems pretty odd that the two of us end up paired together and both wearing a bucket hat. I I feel like yes, I feel, I feel like that was their plan, but who knows. You you had played with Peter in the Nebraska State Open years ago too, yes. right? Yes, it was either 2010 or 2011, and you know I had been at mini tours for three four years then, some success, but nothing nothing crazy. And I think I was up by a couple shots going into the final round, and I played with Peter then, and he's the, kind of the same super nice guy that he is today. Just super chatty when he's on the golf course, and. Uh, he went around, I think, bogey-free and shot either 65 or 66 and ended up beating me by a few. He won. I finished second. Um, and that wasn't his, like, springboard to success, but a few years later is when he, you know, Mondayed into a corn ferry, finished top 25, and I think won the next week, and he's basically been out on tour since then. Having played mini tours for a long time, you know, and obviously you saw a ton of guys, you played probably with tons of guys that made it, other guys that didn't, was that when you played with Peter, did you notice anything that he did that made you think he would get there? Or was he, you know, do you think he was a guy that just, you know, kept developing, got, got hot at the right time? Like, you know, I think it, the whole mini tour gang there, there, things have to break right for you in certain aspects. And there's a lot of guys with great talent, but like, I'm just curious from your perspective as somebody that plays at a high level. He, I will say this. I mean, if you're in the mini tours for years, you come across a lot of guys with pretty poor attitudes. And one thing that stood out about Peter, Peter could take anything and spin it positively. Um, it, it's really unbelievable. And I think that comes in really handy in any level of golf, let alone the grind of mini tour and professional golf. Um, so with that attitude, I'm not, totally shocked that he made it uh obviously a really good player uh he told me a funny story i came up to him on the putting green just to introduce myself because i know no basically no one there other than just a couple of those guys that were part of the team at 20 so i introduced you know went up to him you know just kind of told him the story and he's like oh yeah i remember you obviously um and he was just like you have no idea how close i was to quitting he's like if i don't win that i mean i was out of cash um I think he won maybe $12,000 for that Nebraska open. And he said that kept him going. That put him through Q school that fall. He didn't make it through Q school that year, but that kept him going the following year. And obviously, you know, he had success shortly thereafter. I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? It's like, I feel like so many guys are always looking for the next life raft when you're a mini tour player. Like it's just like, you know, you're you're hoping something goes right a lot of times, and it makes it. It is in your experience playing it. Like you know, are there things that you look back on being really? You know, you miss a lot. And are there th- what what would you say you miss the most, and then what would you say is the thing that you don't miss the most? thing I miss the most is, I mean, it's kind of what you hear from a lot of athletes. It's just, I had a really good group of friends and guys that I would travel around with. Like 
when schedules would come out for state opens and mini tour things over the summer, I, we'd all kind of do a, you know, group FaceTime or a phone call in February or March and try to plot out what events we were going to go to together. Cause if you're able to do it with a group, you got people to play practice rounds with people to go to dinner with. Um, it's kind of fun. And you have kind of a group of guys that you're all rooting for that week. You become really close friends. You're either sharing Airbnbs or hotels. Um, I, I miss that aspect. And you're, you're just around the game a lot. You know, you're spending, you're in these small towns. You really don't have anything else to do other than golf. So you're doing chipping contests, putting contests, gambling on the putting green, practice rounds, um, you know, trying to help each other out with, you know, with your swing. So that, that aspect of it and just always trying to get better is that part of it for me was really fun. I don't miss the bad hotels and, you know, random towns and, the Southeast and the Dakotas like that, <laughs> you know, eating the same takeout for three out of the five nights you're in the town. Yeah, that, that gets a little old. What was the, was the worst hotel that you ever stayed at? What's the worst lodging story? Oh man. There's a few, I mean, North Carolina, I think there was a hotel where the bathroom had a, a chain for the light in the bathroom. Um, that was, that was one of the lowest of the lows. I think it was like $35 a night and it wasn't because I found a good deal on Priceline. Uh, <laughs> that was, had a car breakdown on me in the middle of Georgia once and I was literally stranded. Like I had to take everything out, take everything that was in there and like just put it in a box, ship it home, fly home and then buy a new car when I got there. Uh, <laughs> so Were you yeah, going to a tournament? Did you have to WD too? Thankfully, I was on my way home. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was uh, there's always uh, always some stuff like that. There, there was there was one time I was on. We were at host housing at an event, and I'm allergic to cats, and I had no idea these people had cats prior to this. And I flew in there, so I don't have my own car, so I can't like go get my own hotel. So. I was on an air mattress, right? <laughs> and these cats like to nestle in with you. And so that happened the first night. So the second night, I put the air mattress on top of the pool table. <laughs> <laughs> and at four in the morning, the cat tries to jump up on top of the air mattress, which is already on top of the pool table. And I like, it like wakes me up and I like panic and I hit the cat off and it, all to the floor and I felt really bad. <laughs> well, in that process, the cat had punctured the air mattress. <laughs> so I wake up like three hours later and I'm in this air deflated air mattress where the ends are high. You know, my midsection is low and that was, that was probably the lowest of the lowest. <laughs> I mean, I gotta, I gotta say it's a bullshit host family. <laughs> like, if you're going to host a player, you got to have more than an air mattress. Yeah, that I, I was I was was not super happy. Uh, it took a little longer to get loosened up that next day, to say the least. I 
I worked for the startup, and they were they were super frugal. They would send me places for months, and they were super frugal with the Airbnbs. So, you know, there'd be three of us in a two-bedroom place, and we'd have to rotate who slept on the air mattress. So I just sleep on this air mattress for a month once, and... Uh, the place was like kind of like a it was like two double wides put together in Santa Monica. Like I mean it was like, it was like and uh and you know, get cold there at night. And what because there's no insulation on the floor, the cold air would hit the bottom of the air mattress and it would just oh. deploy it down. I've been there. People that haven't slept on an air mattress don't understand. If you don't have good carpet underneath that air mattress is 40 degrees by the middle of the night yeah, and it's going down you're going down oh, yeah. to the ground mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely it's no way to live so you you played just phenomenal golf uh in particular the first round you know but rather than your phenomenal golf you took the twitter world by storm for your um your your stretching routine i i need to, the world needs to know where it came from, how did you start doing it? So, and I'm going to preface all of this with, I, I feel like if I was Peter Melnati's size, this would not have gotten nearly the attention that it did. Um, but, but unfortunately, I'm 6'6 with a bucket hat and had to be right in the middle of the range with all this was going on. 6'6 six, six and 190 pounds. Yes, yeah, soaking wet. Soaking wet. Um, so it came from, I did a few years ago, I did some work with uh, Jonathan Moore, who uh, involved with Oklahoma State men's golf as their like kind of strength and fitness guru. Um, so it's a functional kind of dynamic warm up that I'm sure I'm not doing. It's been a few years since I've worked with him. So I'm sure I'm not doing it 100% correct, but it's. it's my, my hips and hamstrings get really tight. So just basically trying to loosen that up um and again if i'm usually playing in front of either zero people or a handful of people in either you know northern california pga section events or you know, a few mini tour events that i play so i've certainly never seen it on film uh was caught by surprise when i finished on friday and uh all of that stuff that happened during the round did you get more texts about your good play or the stretching routine thankfully Probably just by a little bit, the, the good play, but uh, it's definitely close. I I have to say, we're gonna, we'll probably post something about this, but I have to say the stretching routine is incredible. After I saw it, I tried it out, and I, I loved it. <laughs> you know, I said at the time that I was going to incorporate it in my daily routine, but of course, you know, a couple of weeks later, it's fallen completely by the wayside because I'm I can't seem to stretch. It's the easiest thing to do is stretching every day, but I can't seem to get myself to do it. You know, I do still have people. Every, it seems like every other day, someone will randomly tag me in some Instagram story of them warming up. Um, you know, doing the routine at some random golf course. <laughs> See, I think it's legitimately great. It's I used to do this thing with my, like it look. I looked ridiculous on the range, but you know, I had a few buddies playing mid am golf in Chicago that all swore by this. It, it was like I do this like leg kick thing, and it really worked well. But that thing, 
works even better. I I think you're on to something, and I don't think that you know people should ridicule you for it because it, it really does work. Some of the some of the comments were pretty funny. I didn't I didn't go too deep into them because I, I I knew they'd get really bad, but a few of them were pretty funny. With the uh, with the PGA, you you were there super early. I, I think you it seems like you made it part scouting for the golf course, part um, you know a little vacation with the wife and and friends and family, right? Yeah. Um, so I knew. Um, I mean, nice thing about I mean, I run my own kind of golf academy instruction business out here, so I was able to. Yeah, able to kind of set my own schedule within reason. Um, so got out there, I think eight days before, um, wife came with me, uh, for the first, for that first, those first three days, she was working from, uh, the ocean course clubhouse. So there was nobody in there. So she basically had the whole clubhouse to herself other than some people setting up. So she was just working from that Ryder cup room, which overlooks the ocean. So, delightful um, office. yeah, it wasn't too bad for her. And then she would, uh, if she didn't have a meeting, she'd come carry the bag. We were doing kind of nine holes a day, did 18 holes the first day I was there and realized just the size and scope of that property. And then that was the only time I played 18 holes prior to the the first round. We would just go around and play nine holes each day. Had all the pins from 2012. Um, so we'd lay those down and just hit a bunch of short game shots to them, a lot of lag putts, just kind of plan out where where you could and couldn't be to certain holes. Mm-hmm. What with um, you playing golf for a long time? Obviously, I I think like the way players practice has changed so much with the you know nine hole routines versus eighteen. Do you remember when that like kind of shift happened? Because I I feel like you know people our age, it was always eighteen, eighteen, eighteen. Or or did, have you been doing the nine hole thing for a long time? It honestly it depends on the course and just how much I know it. Like if I go to an event where I've played it five times, I feel like the need to play it, especially if the conditions are similar, like in terms of the firmness, speed of the course, things like that, isn't necessarily that high. But if it's a place that I haven't seen, then I'm going to try to see it a bunch, and I'd still probably play 18. But I feel like that shift has been it's been relatively recent. I feel like it's really been like kind of last. I mean, Tiger, Tiger was doing it, I feel like, even in his prime. But I feel like the mass, I feel like the masses haven't really started doing it until maybe five, six years ago, where it was, man, it seemed like 90% of the guys out there were only playing nine. I, exactly. That's the thing. Is like, I feel like in the last, it, I, I would agree with you, it's like in the last five years, it used to be like everybody play 18 every day. You know, it was, that was the conventional wisdom, and the conventional wisdom's completely shifted. Um, what were what were you like, you know, what were the things that that you worked on outside of the short game shots and around the greens that when you saw the ocean course you said, "Hey, these are things that I need to sharpen up before we we get to Thursday." Next Thursday. So I yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I knew going in, I knew going in that, you know, most most courses that I play in like mini tour state open section events, not, I mean, we're going to play it around 7,000. So it's, if you hit a decent drive, you're probably not going to have other than a couple holes, more than eight or nine iron into a part four, but Kiwa being so long, I knew that those longer clubs were going to be huge. So, um, put a new two, three and four iron into the bag, um, that ping built for me, those ping crossovers, which 
throw them up in the air a little bit easier um, and spent a lot of time on that because I knew that, you know, I mean, there's, I think there were four par fours over 500 yards or three over 500 yards. Um, so I knew that that was going to be key. So that was the time, you know, spent a lot of time in the range working on those shots, trying to work in both directions, um, either against the wind or ride the wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- yeah t- talk about the wind, and obviously, you know, it was really blowing early in the in the week. Um, did you feel like you you needed? It was a situation where you had to work the ball um, both ways at different op- at different times, or was it? You know, could you get away with just playing one shape? For me myself, it was really hard because I don't hit it super high, mm-hmm. so there were times that my only chance to stop it quick enough was I had to work it against the wind. Um, for some of the guys, for some of the higher hitters, I don't think it was as important. Um, but you know, and and I'm not super long either. So I've got a a little bit longer club coming in and a little lower trajectory. So for me, you know, I was basically trying to work a lot of stuff off of the center of the greens and use a couple of the slopes there to try to funnel the ball closer to the hole. Um, it's just such a, you know, from, from a strategy perspective, I mean, it, it's a course where you knew you're aiming at a lot of centers of green. You're going to have a lot of lag putts for me. And, you know, so it focused a lot of time on lag putts as well um, and trying to get that. And what people don't understand out there is the wind plays such a big role in the putting, yeah. both in the direction of it and then the speed. And if you had uphill into the wind, and those putts were so slow. I mean, you had to hammer those things to get them there. And then if you were downwind, downhill, very, very fast. That's the, uh, you know, when, when wind gets tossed in, my putting is just goes complete shit. I can't handle another variable. It's, it's just a, uh, it's a, it's an utter disaster. Um, and, and like that, the other thing is like the wind makes it so hard to hit it close um, that it just forces you into it. And I think that's like, Generally, and I, I don't know if you agree, something that I kind of have thought more and more about is like how much better lag putting gets at every level of golf. Like every level you go up, the lag putting is maybe the easiest thing to see that's distinctly better. Yes, I would not disagree with that at all. Because I think the, you know, the lowest hanging fruit and you know, most of the juniors that I teach, the first time I see them is, is, is speed control. And it's not, you know, what I think it's not just the speed control from 40, 50 feet. It's, you know, when you have this 12 footer that breaks two feet, I mean, if you don't hit that, if you don't hit that within reason of what you expect for speed, the putt has no chance of going in. So it's, you know, it's the speed control on those putts too. Um, Cause it was, you know, you, you, if you didn't hit them the right speed this week, it, if you hit them too hard, the wind wasn't going to affect them. If you hit them too soft, they just, the wind would just grab him at the end. You're you're you've got your academy at Corica. Is it Corica? Is that how you yeah. pronounce mm-hmm. it? Ever somebody got yeah. on me about how I pronounced it during the week, and I uh, I'm now I've got the it auto corrects on the iPhone to Corsica. Most people end up calling it Corsica. It's there's a lot of different pronunciations. I think I call it Corica. The right way. Cor- Corica. Yeah. So you you got your academy. At what do you think in there's any ways that you've gotten better since you stopped playing competitively full time and you've been working with these, you know, high level juniors? Like, do you think teaching in a way has made you better at any aspect of the game of golf? 
Yeah, I'm certainly more efficient with what I do in practice. Um, obviously, I don't have all day to to practice anymore. So the time that I do get during the week is certainly kind of forced to be a little bit more efficient and a little smarter about what I do. Um, and then with with some of it, I mean, I, I do get to play maybe once a week. I'll go out and play nine holes with some of the better juniors, which forces me to kind of lead by example. So I'll take part and I'll do some of that, do some short game contests with them. Um, so, and I, cause I think it's really good for them, for me to be able to back up what I talk about with them in teaching. Um, so, and I, I think it's, we do a lot of drills and kind of performance benchmarking to, to track progress over time. So doing short game contests and seeing, you know, well, this shot was really hard a couple months ago. Now we're better at this shot. So now what's the next area that we can improve and, and get better from there? Yeah. It, how's your approach different to the teaching aspect of it than say when you were growing up? Because like, I think obviously I think teaching changed quite a bit since we were juniors and, and uh, I'm interested to see hear how, how you've kind of blended different experiences into a methodology. I think that for there's some things like I think people underestimate how hard it is for anyone to actually make a swing change in a short period of time. Um, And I think when I first started teaching, I I think I thought that it was possible for really anyone to make a big change in a hurry. But I I take a much more longer term approach that we're just going to try to blend you know, wherever we are today, you know, let's try to get, you know, if we're working on a position, let's try to get this position better a month or two from now. And, and really understand that that aspect is going to take time. And there's things that I think can improve a little bit quicker, like decision-making on a golf course, like with the juniors, I'm, you know, we're kind of more holistically approaching how to get better. So can we be better with our mental process? Can we be better with our target selection? Can we be better with, you know, just how we go about practicing short game? Like, can we put more pressure on ourselves in practice uh, with putting games and skills competitions, things like that, that are going to more closely resemble tournament golf? You're obviously never going to be able to truly replicate it, but rather than sitting there hitting the same five foot or 10 times in a row, like, can we make this a more dynamic changing environment, which is going to change, which is going to challenge you more. Mm -hmm. The, uh, yeah, I, I feel like when I always think back is like, if I could just have been less of an idiot as a junior, I would have been like three times better of a golfer. Like it's so much of it is just like learning how to play golf. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. I talk about this with juniors all the time. It's like, you're going to have, you know, you really well said, you're going to have these stretches of of good and bad golf, but you can't let these bad stretches of golf kill your score to where your good golf doesn't matter. If you're, you know, if you can get through your bad seven hole stretch at two over your good stretch can overcome that. You can make four birdies in the next eight holes and all of a sudden you're two under, but if your bad stretch is six over through seven holes, well, you're, you're too far behind already. So it's, you know, it's the patience level of, you know, understanding, okay, I short-sighted myself here. Like I don't need to try to hit this perfect flop shot to two feet. Let's get this up to 10 feet with a lower risk shot. If we make the putt great, if not, like let's move on and let's make some pars in the next couple. 
And that's the thing. I think like with the, with teaching, so much of it, it used to be just all technique based. Like you get a lesson and you just go to the T and you hit balls for an hour. Like, and it's like that's that's kind of missing the whole point because like the worst thing you could almost do when when you hit a bad shot is start thinking about technique. Yes, it does. I mean, it is kind of funny and I I feel like it's changing to some degree, but I still feel like, you know, we need to flip the percentage of time that's spent. Like we need to be spending more time on the golf course or at the very least simulate. I mean, now with TrackMan and things like that, you can at least play golf courses on the driving range to where you have to, you know, try to do other things besides just hit the same ball at the same target. Um, but I think if we flip the percentage of time between standing on a tee, teaching a lesson and taking a student on the golf course, I think both students and teachers would be better off for it. What um, you talked earlier about having to get more efficient. Um, I, I, almost everybody that listens to this podcast works a nine to five um, or more than a nine to five uh, and probably has hopes of playing slightly better golf. <laughs> Um, whether, whether they care to admit it or not, what are, what are a few things that you've done that, you know, going from full time, like, what are a few things that have worked really well in terms of, of, Hey, I've downsized like the amount of time I have, like that, you know, prioritizing different things, maybe like, what are a few strategies that somebody could take home with them? So for me, I break, I'll break it down into kind of zones in terms of iron play and I'll do some, some basically training tests on track man. So a wedge zone, kind of a 125 to 175 zone and a 175 to 225 zone. I recognize that everybody is not going to have access to track man, but yeah. um, so that's what I do there. But what I think you could do, what I think the easiest thing to do is kind of, if you can find two points, like two flags on a driving range, that you know, or say, with a driver 25 yards apart and just work in either five or 10 ball sets, trying to get, I'd say two thirds of those drivers in play right inside that fairway. And I, I think if you, if you can figure out a go-to shot off the tee that can help get one in play, I think that's really good. So I do a lot of stuff like that. Like on the, the, the range where I practice, there's, there's these light poles at the end. And I basically use, you know, two light poles as my fairway. So you're trying to work the ball into those targets. And then with, but you can also do the same thing with, you know, mid irons too. So Mm -hmm. you find two targets that are 15 yards apart, right? And if you're hitting six irons in between those two targets, well, if you're missing the green, if your ball's staying inside those targets, you're either not choosing the right target or, you know, there's some other factor that's not letting that ball get on the green. because once you, once you get about seven iron in your hands, if you're an amateur golfer, I mean, you better be aimed at pretty close to the center of the green. I mean, it's, you know, you'd be shocked at the conversations you hear, you know, at Kiwa, it's just, well, let's just work it off the center of the green, work it off the center of the green, work it off the center of the green. But I feel like a lot of amateurs feel like, oh, I got a seven iron in the fairway. Like I have to go right at the pin. Yeah. That's what I say to people all the time is like the better, the better the golfer, the more conservative the golfer is. It's like, you know, like the best golfers in the world in a way are the most, are some of the most conservative golfers. Like they just, you know, the thing that they hate more than anything is making bogeys. And they, you know, to a certain extent, just absolutely terrified of bogeys. 
Oh, hundred percent. And that's what I, I mean, and you, you're spot on there. Cause it's, you look at a high, you look at high level golf. It's really not about making more birdies. It's about bogey avoidance and especially double bogey avoidance. Um, so yeah, it's just good golf is pretty boring. I mean, if, if you can just write pars down, it's, it, it's a lot easier. And that was the thing at Kiwa is just, you're looking at this course and you're kind of thinking through the holes and you're just like, where are these birdies coming from? Like where <laughs> there was those two par fives that were downwind seven and 11. And man, if you didn't get at least one of those, it was, you were struggling to see where other birdies were going to come from. Yes. Like 16 playing into the wind. How, how, how hard was that layup shot? Uh, I mean, I hit driver off the deck three days there. Um, it was, if you're a bomber and could get it up top, it was slightly easier, but those fairways, the ball spun so much off the fairways that even trying to hit three wood off of that fairway into the wind, the ball was just going nowhere. So, so that, that grass just made the ball spin more. Yeah. Makes the wind more of a, more of a factor. Yes. Yes. It was, you, you were seeing some numbers on, on track man that were, your average, at least on my end, like it was at least a thousand more RPMs with the average iron into the wind. Um, or not just into the wind, just off those fairways and then into the wind just amplifies that effect. So it's just going to balloon way more than it would off of a normal fairway. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Smathers and Branson. This is an awesome gift for anybody. Uh, whether they're a serious golfer or not, like you can get somebody a belt is really neat that has nothing to do with golf they've got all these music ones and you know obviously the team stuff but the really neat thing i think is the life belt which allows you to pick from numerous different logos so you could get that your favorite you know that where you went to college you could put it on the belt but you could also have you know rolling stones the the tongue you know or uh pink floyd logo or arnold palmer jack nicholas you know whatever fits your fancy you can mix and match this uh you know you could have a dog on there since if you're a dog lover i don't know you know anybody that doesn't like dogs i i don't trust anybody like that but anyways uh, you can do the belt, the life belt on their website. It's really neat, really easy to do. And you get 15% off plus free shipping on the life belt if you use the promo code FRIEDEGG. That's 15% off plus shipping at smathersandbranson.com on the life belt and or anything else. Thanks to Smathers and Branson for the support. And now back to Brad Merrick. How, how was the first round playing after that like what where where'd you play and and how did it feel to go back to playing like a normal golf course um (laughs) i ended up going up to uh i was up in spokane last weekend for um there there was a mini tour event up in spokane uh and then I had U.S. Open qualifying on Monday. And it was, fortunately, it blew about 25 miles an hour. So that felt really familiar. But I think the golf course was like 6,600 yards long. So it was, you know, a thousand yards shorter. Um, so it was, yeah, it was certainly, uh, I joked with some of my friends. Like I went to, I went to Whole Foods on the Tuesday after the PGA and I like, got coffee and no one, no one cheered for me when I got the coffee. So that was kind of a, a rude adjustment. So. <laughs> 
that's the way I I always felt after you played like a big the the day you go back to playing like just regular setup golf after big tournament it's like oh thank God I'm back to this. <laughs> it uh it, it felt nice to play it felt nice to play golf where you didn't where you could actually make birdies. Um, cause Kia, I mean, Kia was just, it was so hard. Um, especially those, you know, those first two days when the wind was, when the wind was whipping, it was, it was brutal. I got a question for you. So how many times have you played, uh, like us open qualifying? Too many to count. Yeah, probably, probably 20 years now from, I mean, I think I probably started doing a junior or senior year of high school. And maybe there was a year in there I missed because I had something else. But yeah, there's certainly not more than one or two years that I missed it. Uh, you just you missed out by a couple. Seems like you were you were in it, um, and in Washington. But then you see a guy like Andy Pope. You grew up playing with Andy Pope. Uh, you probably know him pretty well. He's qualified five of the last six years. Do you think there's something like what what makes somebody great at at qualifying? You know. <sighs> It is, it is remarkable. I mean, it's unbelievable what he's done. Um, I didn't know it was five of the last, I knew it was a lot, but I didn't know it was five of the last six. Um, that's incredible. And there's, there's guys, you see like Brian Stewart, who I think yeah, has gotten Springfield through. every year. Yes. Hardy's the same way. And Hardy, I think was inside the number until the last couple holes this year. They're, there's certainly something, I mean, and, and I, I feel like I never play well there, so I would love to know, <laughs> I would love to know what he, what his approach is, but there are certain guys that I don't know, a lot of these are hold, held at the same course a lot, um, but even still, it, it's incredible, because the, the talent that's in those qualifiers is, is pretty high, and to, you know, it's not a high number of spots, I mean, it's just four guys, 80 guys for four spots, I think, at those, you know, the one that Andy was at this year. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think junior golf like how much better is junior? You're obviously a very good junior player. Um, you, you played at Indiana. Like, how much better is junior golf now than when we even played it? I think it's deeper than it used to be. I think it's kind of similar to what's going on, like at a professional level. Like, it, it seems like it's the high end golf is probably def, definitely a little bit better. But I mean, there were there were studs even when we were playing that were just dominating junior golf. But I feel like the I definitely feel like the above average player is better at junior golf than when, say, we were playing junior golf. Um, I think the strategy has gotten a little bit better overall. Like I don't see the same you know kind of silly mistakes. There there are some, but I feel like the silly mistakes are a little bit less. Um. Yeah, that, that that's what I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was a freshman, I was just hoping to shoot like forty two. Uh, <laughs> now you see these kids like shooting like sixty five as fourteen year olds. I'm like, what? It's a different different world. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, it's it is kind of wild. Do you do you played a lot? Of, you play a lot of different sports too. Growing up, do you, do you are you seeing most kids specialize early at a younger age, or is it you know pretty much is it, you know across the board? And do you think specialization at a young age is is helpful, or do you think like other stuff is good? You know, other sports is, are good. I, 
I think other stuff is really good. Um, I think you do see, I certainly see a lot more earlier specialization and it's been tough because these kids don't have, you know, for the last year and a half, they haven't been in school. So they don't have any kind of PE class or anything like that. So I just don't see with the people that don't early specialize, you generally see a better developed athlete for the, for the kids that are specializing early. If, if there's no other athletic outlet, I just kind of on average, I feel like those kids have less speed, they're less dynamic, and it's, it's a little bit harder for them to make some of the changes and, and ramp up the speed to where it needs to be versus the kids that are playing, you know, basketball, volleyball, soccer, things like that. Yeah, that's it. I think that's spot on because when I got, when I had the most speed in my life, I was playing the most pickup basketball in my mm-hmm. life. And it was something, it was about the quick twitch and the explosion that you get from like running and jumping all the time. And then it translated like, I just like, you know, after playing, you know, three day a week pickup hoops and leagues and stuff over an entire winter, the next year I came back, I was like 20 yards longer, just doing for no, you know, and I think that that's something I, I think with, with juniors, it's, it's kind of because those other sports help with other things. I, I had uh, one of my best juniors who's having a really good summer, won a big amateur tournament around here, then followed it up with an AJGA win um, and finished second in another AJGA. He's had a rock star summer. And he, this was two winters ago, he was swinging at about 97 miles an hour and he's in his sophomore year of high school, goes and plays basketball for his high school team, comes back and obviously he grows a little bit, gets a little bit stronger, but you know, and I'd see him like, you know, once a week in there, just kind of making sure that things were not falling too far out of line. And then he got back into golf, you know, full time, you know, once the basketball season ended and he's swinging at 110 miles an hour. And he really didn't play golf, but a couple times a week. And it's just from, you know, he was in the gym with basketball, but he was, you know, playing five, six days a week. And it was, it was unbelievable. It was the biggest jump I've ever seen in that short of time. That's, I think just in general with golf, like they, people fall in the habit of, um, you know, work like thinking if you're, if you want to be great at golf, you have to devote everything to golf. But like so many times I've found over the course of my life, like getting away from it almost helps me more than being in it. hundred percent. And there's, I mean, if you look at some of these top guys, I mean, you put, you know, Dustin, you put Brooks, you put, you put those guys on a basketball court. I mean, that's going to be a killer pickup basketball team. I mean, these, these guys would be good at any sport that has, hand-eye coordination and athleticism involved and that's and I just I I think that sometimes that that gets a little lost is that you think that oh I I need to sit there and just hit you know hit these flop shots or hit these four footers repetitively and like there's cross training matters too in my opinion it's not just all about golf Mm -hmm. yeah I think there's a pretty it's a I don't think we've gotten to a point where at any certainty you could say that you're losing by not uh specializing right off the bat because if you look at the top players in the world a lot of them played different sports like obviously tigers the the case in point to specialization but then you know you go down the list like dj played a lot of different sports justin thomas probably a specialization guy you know i think john rom played some other sports 
But then, you know, there, there are guys like with Brooks, like Brooks played, wanted to be a baseball player. He hates golf, right? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and Rory famously broke his ankle playing soccer. It's, it's just, you know, I think it, it gets lost. Like you think you have to work so hard. And I think you're, you're a case in point. I'm guessing that you probably feel in many ways you're better than you were when you decided to hang him up now. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, honestly, some of my, I think one of my best mini tour seasons was 2018. I think I won twice, finished second twice. And I was teaching full time. I would just, you know, I was just getting started. So I would still go out and play some mini tour events to make some extra cash. Um, and yeah, it was, it was kind of funny. I mean, it was, you know, I was certainly practicing 40% of what I used to practice and the results were better. Hey, how do you even go about building up a book of business as a teaching pro? A lot of it's word of mouth. Um, you know, I was fortunate. I kind of, when I first started, I had a, a partner with what I was trying to do with the, the academy and he had had a few higher level guys that uh, he threw my way. And, you know, those guys start having success and the, the best, especially in junior golf, the, the absolute best marketing is going to be word of mouth. And so you have a few people that start having success and then, you know, these kids can't drive themselves when they're early on in their junior golf days. So the parents are following them around the golf course and inevitably the parents get to talk, oh, who are you working with? Um, and it's, it's just referrals. I mean, I've had you know, probably one or two students that have got me probably two thirds of my, you know, higher end junior students, like in terms of, you know, best players. Did you get a lot of calls after the PGA? Yes, a lot of lot of calls, a lot of emails, a lot of questions about the bucket hat and where they could get that. Uh, <laughs> I, what about calls for uh, client like new new juniors? Yeah, no, no, that's yeah, that okay, lot okay, of, yeah, a lot of calls, emails through my website, things like that. So it's been uh, so that has been incredible. Um, so trying to you know, the last couple of weeks has been you know trying to fit these new people in um, into the schedule and and see if there's ways that I can help. See, that's why like playing ma- matters, right? You know, playing the PGA, like the club pro stuff matters because it's like it's probably your best, uh, best. You know, make it. You got to make the cut every year. It's the best advertising you can get. Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I honestly, I didn't really realize how much coverage there was until I kind of got back and sifted through all these messages and you know realized how much I was on TV and just talked to some friends that were watching. Um, Man, you were on TV a lot, so it's been. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. Let's put it that way. Um, how many how many Uber rides did you give in your career? How, how long did you Uber for? One winter, the first winter I started dating my now wife, like I didn't go down to Florida uh, like I usually did. So I would was it because you met her. Pretty much, yeah. Like I think I was planning on going down to florida and then i i went i went to florida but it was for a short amount of time so i needed something to do and this was like when uber was first starting when yeah so if it was i would typically uber from like six in the morning till you know rush hour was over and then i'd go to the gym and then i'd go you know hit some golf balls inside and that was that was kind of my day it was it was <laughs> it was interesting let's put it that way was i the only person that recognized you I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I did it for probably like 
six, seven months, uh, like that winter. And then just in the spring as I was leading up to play in that summer. Um, but yeah, maybe one other, but yeah, I think you might've been it though. As it was, that was wild. Uh, it was funny, like because I I hadn't thought of that until you get, you were playing, and I was like, you know what? Because I was like thinking about just like things that I remember. I was like, oh, I think you drove Uber, like, <laughs> like the whole memory. Um, but uh, but uh, with uh, with the how does it work? So you make the cut. Does that get you exempt into the club pro championship? Like, how does it all work with that? I, I, I don't know enough. Are you in the PGA cup? One of the best events in, in golf? Like what, how does that all work? Like what, is, what is getting, making the cut outside of a, you know, probably one of the biggest paychecks of your life, uh, in terms of a pro golf career, what, what else does it get you? Um, so it gets, uh, it gets me out of, pre-qualifying and first stage of Q school for this year for corn. Are you going to do that? So yeah, if going straight to second stage, you kind of have to, in my opinion, if you can go right to there. So I will, I'll definitely do that. Um, When was the last time that you'd, you'd done Q school? Q school. I went to Europe in like 2015. Um, I went to Europe in 2015, had some like pretty bad conditional status on like the challenge tour that I never really took advantage of. Um, but yeah, that's the last time I've been to any Q school. So that's, this will be, that'll be good. It gets me exempt into the PGA professional championship for the next two years. Um, so hopefully give me a good opportunity to play, hopefully some more PGA championships. And then, um, it gets me out of the pre-qualifying portion of Monday qualifiers for the PGA tour for the rest of the year. So it can go right to the Monday qualifiers. Are you going to um, do any of those? Yeah. So I'll go, I think the first one I'm going to do is up in Minnesota in July. I'll do the Barracuda, uh, which is by us in August. Um, the event at Silverado, I don't know the sponsor anymore. The one that used to be Safeways here. And so I'll probably go to six or seven, I'd say over the course of 2021 trying to get into the Ben Cook zone here. You know, you're going to make me eat, <laughs> eat all my words here. <laughs> well, uh, th- well, if you can go straight to the Mondays, it's easy because you can fly out on Sunday and then fly back on Monday if you miss. If you have to do those pre-qualifiers, you're, you're essentially at that site for six, seven days. Yeah. The, the, that whole model, if you, do, if you can't, it's like a hopeless model if you are trying to go to pre-qualifiers and then Mondays, it's like... It's <laughs> two two ridiculous things, you know. And then a lot of days on site. Um, with uh, with the you know, like, what would you do? Say say you got corn fairy status. Like, what do you do? Like, I I really like what I do. Um, I, I don't think that I would would stop. I mean, one even if you get status with the corn fairy, I mean, there's really not that many really good cards at Q school. I mean, you're really unless you get in that top forty at the finals you're fighting to get an event. Um, so, I mean, a lot would depend on how good the status would be. Um, but, you know, then I'd, you know, I'd, I'd have to figure out a way. If, if that happened, I had probably have to figure out a way, bring in somebody else to help me teach um, so that I could focus a little bit more on, on my game. But I don't know. I've just kind of approached, you know, all like once I started teaching, I just wanted to see, you know, keep practicing on my end and just see if I could keep getting better. Um, there's obviously less pressure on my game now because it's not 
the primary source of income, but I just like the challenge of getting better and, you know, spending some time, you know, trying to get better with some of the longer clubs that has typically been, you know, my weakness um, and, you know, see how good I can get. Yeah, and it gave you a reason to get a track man, right? When you're a mini tour pro, you can't afford can't afford yeah. one, but when you're a teaching pro, you have to have one. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the conversation went a lot easier with my wife when I was telling her that we needed this, you know, this track man when I was actually teaching as opposed to playing. So that was for sure. That was nice. Do you think low club pro should be exempt the next year to the PGA? I don't. Maybe if maybe if it comes with making the cut, maybe you have to make the you have to make the cut. It's a really good question. I hadn't thought of that. It's something I I th- I was thinking about. I almost I almost put it in a column, but I I'm on. I think I it, you should if you're low club pro. It's such a it's such a neat part of the championship. Like you should be back. Like we get to know the low club pro. We get to know the club pros that make the cut. And then like the next year rolls around and you don't know if they're going to be in it. Right. That is a good point. Cause it, it, it is, it is interesting that, you know, I mean, Ben and I still have to go play really well at, you know, the PGA professional championship just to get back to the PGA. And it's, yeah, that is an interesting point. It wouldn't be a bad well, idea. Ben, low- Ben's not a low club pro. He's, he's now back on, he's got his, he's got, he's got PGA tours claiming him as their own low club <laughs> pro. You know, this is, this is real. I've launched a full investigation. The findings are he was, he was disqualified as a club pro. He had a great finish as a, uh, you know, a, a Latin American qualifier. <laughs> Man, if you're doing that with Ben, what are you doing with Omar? Oh, Omar. Omar might have a whole podcast, you know, dedicated to him. I, I, I advocate that he should have to wear a different uniform based off of what status he's playing off of, you know, because some weeks he's in as a PGA member and then other weeks he's in as a PGA Tour member. And it's just, you know, I've got a... I've got an associate. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name my source. He's a retired PGA professional living down in uh, in uh, the village down there, the PGA village. You know where the three courses are. Oh yeah. He was telling me. He was like, "Oh, I was like, what? What have you been doing?" He's like, "Well, uh, you know, been playing golf, been watching golf. They have all these like section events down here." And he and he was like, "I was like, oh, you know." those ones that Omar cleans up on. And he's like, oh, yeah. You know, all us retired guys, we can't stand Omar. <laughs> and he told me a story. Some guy beat him, beat him in a playoff, and there was like 70 old retired club bros just like, we're going nuts when the other guy won. <laughs> like, they were just <laughs> cheering like crazy. They were. Like, he was like, we were just so happy that that kid beat him. <laughs> I I, I will not name names either, but when we finished up at in Florida, so we had to do media stuff for uh, we had to do media stuff for the PGA Championship, and the TVs were on because it was obvious, you know, who was going to be inside the cut, and the last few holes were going on, and it was very eye opening. Some things that were being said while the television coverage is on. I'll just say that. I think he played 400 events or 500 events on the PGA Tour. 
Yeah, he's is made three and a half million dollars. I mean, and he played. He's played three hundred plus rounds just at those golf courses in Florida alone. That our that tournament was on. Um, I just i I feel the same way with like mid am golf. Like you know, I play the mid am and I'm I'm hitting balls next to Jess Daly, and I'm like, we aren't the same person <laughs> here. Like like I I was twenty three and went and worked in an office. Like you were you were on the PGA tour. I, yeah, I, some of that stuff, especially with the mid am, is is incredible. Just to see the the disparity in the backgrounds of some of these guys. I mean, they're like the reinstated amateurs that just came off an eight year, you know, professional career are playing in the mid am. <laughs> well, that's I saw John Peterson's going to get his his mid am. He's going to have mid am status in like. Danny, he's waffled like eighteen times on that. He's gone from a business guy to a. It, to Monday qualifiers, to I'm getting my amateur status back. To I saw that they said it was it would take two years. I mean, you're talking about a guy. He made like four million dollars. Yeah, but the guy almost won the U.S. Open, and you're going to be going up against him in the mid am. Uh, my dreams of that are are long gone until uh, <laughs> until this uh, this this part phase of my life is over so the uh i don't have to worry about that that's for other people i have to worry about at this point but but yeah that it's just it's it's a wild thing i think the the question is like where does omar go like where do these guys go there needs to be some purgatory that they're put into like you know they shouldn't go down and beat up on club pros i think that's like them like you have to like have a full profession like omar does not work no, no, I, I don't know. It's, I don't understand why the loophole was created to begin with. Like, I just, I don't really understand why. And I, and I don't know much about it, but it just seems, I don't know. I just don't know why that option was ever existed in the first place. I mean, Omar followed all the rules. I just, I don't know why the rules were there. That's I was I was thinking you know a, a, a funny bit if you ever did it would be like go to go to where Omar says he's a club a pro and, be, and then just sit there and ask ask members or, or local players <laughs> to come in and be like hey uh, you ever seen this guy around like you ever take a lesson from Omar uh, you see him full <laughs> yeah you, you ever full you ever see him folding shirts in a pro shop <laughs> work in the register. I love it. I love um, it. So, uh, where where are we going to see you next? We're going to see you at the Club Pro Championship. Maybe we'll see you at uh, at uh, you know Monday Monday. You know, qualifying schools not on TV. Maybe we'll see you Monday in something. Yeah, that's the hope. No, uh, nothing. I mean, nothing as cool as you know being on TV that much at the PGA Championship. Uh, we've got our like. Northern California PGA section championship coming up in July. Uh, winner of that gets into the event that's up in Napa. Oh, that's a big one. There's got to be a lot of good players in, in Northern California. Yeah. Um, and our, one of the perks of our section is that we have three exemptions into tour events based on you know who wins our match play, who wins our stroke play, and who wins player of the year. Um, so, so that's good. And just trying to, just trying to get ready for you know, stuff in the fall. I imagine when you moved to California, that made playing actually like kind of harder full time, right? The, the travel aspect of it, yeah, because you're there aren't really you know most of the mini tours are kind of in the south, southeast, and the Midwest over the summer, 
Um, so traveling out of here became a, a little bit harder. You're just, you're, you're always flying, you know, back East somewhere to play in something. And then uh, your website for where people can find you. What is it? BradMerrickGolf.com? Yeah, and Merrick is M-A-R-E-K. And then on Instagram, at BradMerrickGolf. So pretty easy. Hey, one last question. Is it really just the same lesson every time? Because I, I think that, like, I've never gotten a different lesson. It's just the same. I always am doing the same things. I think what separates really good teachers from teachers that aren't as good is that I think the really good teachers have a lot of different ways to say the same thing. Well, that's the guy that I've gone to, he says it differently every time, but then when I think about it, it's the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the things is like understanding, like, can you, can you trick, can you find a way to essentially trick your student into the right position? Like if it's physically hard for them to achieve, can you give them a drill or can you do something that's going to get them there where they might not have been able to get to by just consciously trying to think about it? I I imagine that's so frustrating because you're trying to explain something and people just don't understand it. And then you could say it's something just like, just a little bit different. And then they're like, Oh, yeah. At the end of the day, it's the student that has to come up with it on their own. Essentially, you're just as a teacher, you're just trying to lead them to the right thought that resonates with them. In my opinion, I agree with that. You're just trying to, you know, basically guide them. You know where you want them to get, but you're just trying to guide them to where you know they understand the solution and can kind of feel it and describe it and and kind of own it on their own. One last thing. What's your pet peeve for a student? What's the what's the thing that just grinds your gears? Oh, when the student knows exactly when the student, or in my case with the juniors, when the parent knows, you know exactly what their kid needs to do and what the kid is doing wrong and what the fix is, and tells you. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like okay, so <laughs> why are you here? Like why? I mean, just go, just move down a few stalls, and you guys can work on it. And I can, I can hit some wedges here myself. <laughs> Yeah, that's always my favorite. There were the, you know, well, he does he does X, Y, and Z, so he just needs to do this. Okay, great. Like, yeah, that's fine. Go, go ahead. That that happens to me sometimes too. Similar is like people will tell me stuff that they clearly read from one of my articles, and I'm like, yeah, I I wrote about that. That was that was my article. And you missed you you missed a couple of those stats in there. You're not exactly you, you didn't remember those perfectly there. Um, all right, Brad, it's been awesome talking to you. Hopefully, we'll see you again at uh, at Southern Hills. That would be a good plan. I would like that. Yeah, and uh, good luck. I'm sure you're in the PGA Cup. You gotta be. I I don't know. I have any idea on the point. You gotta research. You gotta research that. Get it? Yeah. In that is PGA that, Cup. Is that this year? Or is that next year? I don't know. I, I, I neither do I. The, the, <laughs> great event. <laughs> I love it. Good catching up. Enjoyed it. All right. Later. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Meg Atkins. Just as a quick reminder, we've got some great events 
this summer and uh, into the fall, we just released a couple new events at Whiteberry Yacht Club, the Regatta, as well as Pine Hills, an incredible golf course up in Sheboygan. Uh, that's the day after the Ryder Cup. So we're going to do a big match play match up there. It's only an hour from Milwaukee. And really, I think it's probably one of the, the best courses I've ever seen that nobody has ever talked about. So White Bear is obviously, you know, a top 100 golf course, one of the best golf courses in Minneapolis. That's going to be an awesome event. We have that as well as we have some spots still at Davenport at the end of July. Davenport is amazing, amazing Allison golf course, the best Allison golf course that I've seen. And it's only about two hours from two and a half hours from the city of Chicago. So come out to an event. They're really fun. Uh, everybody has a good time. It's a you know friendly competition with some great prizes and great people. So thanks for listening to another edition of the Friday podcast. We will be back next week.